And thanks to our presenting partners, Bintani and Fermentus. Welcome to this Brewery Pro live seminar. In this seminar, we look at hard seltzer. This category exploded onto the US scene a little over two years ago, with category juggernaut White Claw leading the way. Since then, brewers large and small have enthusiastically embraced the category. But what is an alcoholic seltzer? How do you make them? When is a seltzer not a seltzer? Where do they fit into your overall strategy? And where do they fit into the broader beer market? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by my expert panel, starting with Justin Fox, Head of Sales, Products and Development at Bintani Australia. Justin, welcome. G'day, Matt. Thanks for having us uh, and giving us a chance to speak to everyone about this pretty hot topic. Pleasure. I'm also uh, joined by Ruth Leary, Regional Technical Sales Manager, Australia, New Zealand, Japan and Korea. Welcome, Ruth. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, just to say up front to everybody that's listening, obviously, uh, we're still in lockdown. Ruth is in New Zealand. Uh, Justin is in Melbourne. We are going to be joined by Brendan Day from Perth, um, and I'm in Brisbane. So, Justin, I guess the very first question that we wanted to deal with is, what is a seltzer? Yeah, exactly. It's it's still a buzz, uh, a buzzword or a new word in our drinking vocabulary here in Australia. But um, as, as most people who have dialed into this will be fully aware of um, how much it's taken over and, and dominating some of the, um, the drinking habits of people overseas, especially in the US. So really to go back to it, the seltzer word in itself isn't uh, a new word. Um, seltzers have been around for a long time. The category that's emerging is a, is a hard seltzer. So if you, if you to go back and look at water and, and the options and um, the different categories, you've sort of got seltzer is really the most stripped back and raw form of a, of a carbonated water. So you've got your sparkling waters where there's um, a degree of mineral content that's a natural occurring um, product. Uh, you've got your club sodas, which are, are basically mimicking that without uh, the natural occurrence. So you're putting back in that mineral content. And the seltzer is really the stripped back version. So you, you're not putting the mineral content. And because you don't have that mineral adding flavour to your beverage, um, what it frees you up to do is to put some flavours back in. Uh, and so um, some of the biggest brands that people will know is uh, the Croy or um, where you've got a big range of essentially just sparkling waters uh, with no mineral content. So the, the category branching into hard seltzer is essentially mixing that with ethanol um, and there's a, there's a massive variety of ways to get there, really. There's a, there's a number of different uh, procedures you can get to get to the end game that is ethanol, water and, and flavour and CO2. And we'll touch a little bit on uh, the ATO and tax because technique really has an impact on the way you are taxed and, and what approach you take to making these has an impact on how you're taxed. But let's talk a little bit about what are the key attributes that you're looking for as a, as a brewer um, in the production of a uh, seltzer? So what we've seen is essentially in the, I guess, the niche category or the main category, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty approachable alcohol of around uh, 4 or 5%. Um, there are some... Uh, Variances to that starting to emerge with extra hard categories and, and people diversifying through that. There's obviously uh, very low bitterness or no bitterness. Ideally, the, the product category has no bitterness, uh, but some out there will have a degree or a very base level, and that's for obvious reasons that they're requiring it to have that from a from a drink um, legislation perspective because of the labelling or the taxation laws. Um, because really we did have the nobody. issue. Um, sorry to jump in, but we did have the issue a few years ago um, when RTDs were taxed, and there was the move from distilled spirits to uh, malt-based beverages. And there is a, a requirement that hops be used for it to be taxed as a beer, isn't there? Yeah, that requirement still stands in the Australian taxation uh, and a four international bitterness unit measurement. So. Um, and where we would see that in the industry is around things like Berliner Weisses and, and other beers, which are, are very much recognised beers having very low bitterness, and people will be putting in that base level just to meet that obligation. It's really, you'd argue that for IBU is, is unperceivable, um, but when you're stripping everything else out of that beer uh, and you've got no other acidity or hop aromas or anything to hide behind or a, um, 
eat malt flavours, uh, then the 4-IBU can be quite perceivable. Once we move past bitterness, we then uh, a lot of the um, discussion is around things like carbohydrates and calories. Correct, yeah. So it's a, it's a, there is a movement towards or, or a push for the category to be seen as a uh, pro-healthy lifestyle category. Um, very low carbohydrates and calories sort of around the, the 100 calorie mark for a, a complete can or, or bottle. And there's even new categories emerging now in the US with that ultra low, pushing that down to sort of 70 calories per per unit. Um, so that, that's definitely a, a part of the angle and that might be some of the appeal uh, in terms of the target market, which we can discuss a little bit further when we get into that. Um, but that is, is a conscious decision of, of people to approach the category. Um, the, the, the final points on sort of what, what the attributes are is around colour, um, very clear, if not absolutely clear. So any uh, colouring back into the product is kept to the minimum uh, and any colour incurred in the product, I guess, during production is uh, obviously stripped out where possible. Um, the flavour combination is pretty endless. So that's where the, the creativity or the diversification comes in. And, you know, we've seen it in sparkling waters or soda waters or everything over here we can see um, those combinations, think of the flavour combinations you could achieve in a cocktail or a mocktail or really it's pretty it's pretty endless when your base is water and ethanol um, and you're opening up a flavour window, then uh, you really can do anything you want in that space. And, you know, the, the flavours may be influenced by that need still to be desired as a, as a healthy image in the category. So um, people are going to look towards fresh fruits and, and refreshing um, flavours to sort of accentuate or stand out on the product. Ruth, was there anything that you wanted to, to jump in and look at the, the, the key attributes from the, the, the technical angle? I guess um, one thing we've seen, particularly in the US, is over time, some of the brands that started off as a typical malt beverage um, with cereal grains, you know, neutral tasting um, malt base, have now switched to doing all sugar, all sugar ferments so they can claim that they're gluten-free. Um, so the gluten-free seems to be uh, now on every can and, and quite a few breweries who initially launched um, did alter their formulation. And that kind of goes along with the fact that over in the US they did change the definition, I guess, for beer, enabling you to use sugar as a suitable alternative to cereal grains. Um, whereas over here in Australia and New Zealand we have the food standards and we could either choose to make a seltzer as a beer or we could choose to make it as a, a ready-to-drink RTD, which then also, as you just said, um, influences tax. And for those who are listening, uh, there is a chat room and you can see the um, show notes. It has a little bit of information at the end uh, looking at some of those, uh, and, and we'll discuss them as well, but some of the regular regulatory uh, guidelines, including links to the food uh, standards for the Australian New Zealand, the enforcement agencies, um, some information from the ATO about their attitude to them and uh, other things. So, Justin, just moving uh, on to you, uh, and, and I guess we might look at the process for making um, seltzers because, as Ruth indicated, there are a variety of techniques and a variety of ingredients. Um, I, I guess we should probably, at least for, for this discussion, keep ourselves primarily looking at the ones that are taxed as beer, um, do you think? Yeah, happy to. There's definitely the, the initial products in the market uh, are coming in uh, separate to the beer industry. I think there's um, as much as there's interest in the beer industry for getting into the, to the segment. There's a lot of people outside of that seeing that it doesn't have anything to do with a brewery and they can um, manufacture and, and get new products into the market themselves. So there's there's definitely products on the market that are purely a vodka uh, and they're branding as a vodka seltzer because they're coming in to, to start getting people used to the word seltzer and essentially it's a vodka uh, soda beverage with, with flavour. Um, there's other people doing pure sugar ferments as well. Um, there's people just adding uh, ethanol base as um, and, and fully admitting it's, it's as an RTD and it's very similar to those products. Um, and then there's people working in between. The grey area in between is obviously pretty big and it's, it's varied even between Australia and New Zealand. I think some of the customers that we've got who are playing in that space are looking to do sort of 50% malt, 50% sugar. Um, in New Zealand, the wording is a little different. 
cereal crop. So brewers are chucking in, you know, the last runnings from the previous brew and um, calling that, well, we've thrown some word in there as well and the rest is pure sugar. So there's a lot of interpretation and the legalities of that are very, um, still very pointed for discussion. I think we, we have discussed with the ATO what their position is and it's probably too soon for them to, to formally come out and say one way or another. Um, and I believe anyone who's already got one in the market has probably called them to, the, to discuss what, what the level of taxation is. And I think the cautious approach at the moment is to consider it as an RTD um, until we've got some form of precedent or case to show that it's, it's following and meeting the Australian taxation legalities. Looking at it from a tax point of view is one thing. How do the different um, ingredient approaches affect the outcome flavour-wise? So obviously when you've got a brewer's work, you're getting a bit of flavour and colour coming through from the cereals, even if you're going for really neutrality um, and and low colour. So you're getting a little bit of influence from that. Also nutrition. Um, And when you're going for a pure sugar, you've got no flavour contribution, no colour contribution. And often the you know, the desired, you know, if you're making a hard seltzer, what you really want to do is give yourself a very flexible, neutral tasting alcoholic base that you've brewed um, to be able to then flavour in the directions you want. And if you can have it nice and neutral, that means you can actually flavour it to not a really high level and still have quite a refreshing product, which is what consumers often expect when they're buying something labelled a seltzer. Yeah, so the best in case situation is to, to use a pure sugar ferment for exactly that reason. It's the cleanest, lightest, no colour, um, and it will give you the base to, to do whatever you want. The the grey line between how much malt to how much sugar is something that will be the dance with uh, the taxation department and, and the legislative uh, movement. Um, but there's also the nutrition part, which we'll get into a little bit more later, that the more um, malt you've got in there, the easier it is to be to, to ferment. Essentially, uh, a sugar ferment isn't as easy as everyone thinks. Um, we're pretty protected in beer that uh, a lot of the stuff that yeast needs to do a good job is actually already in the malt. So we've got great nitrogen, we've got um, great supporting enzymes, obviously. We've got a lot of the stuff that works with yeast is already there. So when you go to uh, pure sugar, um, if you don't really get that nutrition and buffering capabilities right, everything will be parked up on day one at 1% and you wonder why it stopped bubbling. We might step back to what is the category. So what what is the target market? Because looking at the different uh, you know, w- w- different ways to approach it with different tax implications, I, I guess the best place to start is trying to work out who you're aiming it at. So what is the target market for the for the seltzer category? Yeah, I think this this would be a great time to bring in Brendan. I mean, uh, over at Cheeky Monkey, they've had a, a product in the market. Um, now called the Great White, and they've launched their first sort of flavour of that with the promise of more to come. Um, so I can see Matt's dialing him in, but essentially the, the target market is a, it's a new drinker. It's a drinker who's health conscious. Um, it's, it's definitely targeting a younger community that is coming through um, and having more... Um, acceptance of, of the impact of alcohol and the associated drinks that they're putting into their bodies. So there's a, there's a definite skew towards the younger demographic. There's also um, there's a diversification in it. If beer is a diminishing, uh, a diminishing skew, as we see globally, that whilst craft beer is, is gaining its share, that beer as an overall whole is probably still trending down. So um, it's, a, it's, it's a side movement for a brewer um, if they're going to look to enter that. The target market, yeah, look, I I think it's there's definitely talk around it being uh, healthy. Um, Sorry, Rick, yeah, through to you. I was just going to add that some of the market leaders like White Claw in the US have a really even gender split, which is quite interesting. Um, You know, just over 50% female and nearly 50% male. And what they're seeing is that it's both beer and cocktail type beverages that are being switched out and people moving to hard seltzers. So it's really is affecting and changing the landscape of the whole industry. And, you know, in some months last year, um, the hard seltzers outperformed even Budweiser. So, yeah, it's, it's really changing the landscape. So interesting to see how we go here in Australia. And we welcome Brendan Day to the conversation now. Brendan, uh, welcome to the, uh, to the live podcast. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. It worked. I love it when a plan comes together. Now, Brendan, <laughs> you guys have uh, kicked off with a, with a hard seltzer. Maybe give us a little bit of a, an overview to what you guys have done um, and, and what you've done and why. Yeah, just before I do that, I'll, I will follow on from what Ruth was saying because I think it was a very interesting point. Um, we are seeing similar trends in, in our buyers as well where it's it's – I think our preconception or, or perhaps our misconception actually was that it was a, a largely female dominated uh, millennial category. Um, as we all know, millennials are, are drinking less and, and choosing um, a lot or they're a lot more health focused. And uh, we had the kind of conception that that was going to be our main drinker. But after getting into the market and, and getting a little bit of data back, um, and also digging into some of the Google search trends, um, I thought it was interesting to see that, you know, our demographic's fairly well split, um, but male professionals in, the, I think it was 25 to 35 category, I don't want to give away all of our secrets here, <laughs> but um, they actually over-indexed in the search. So it was, yeah, older, not older, but though that kind of younger to mid-aged male professional that was searching for it more now, whether that correlates into sales or not is, is yet to be determined, especially in Australia. But it has been a, a really interesting journey for us. Um, obviously, getting in, as, as, as you said, we, we kind of really got into this pretty early for the Australian market, and, and we saw what it was doing over in the States. Um, and as you know, somebody who likes to make some um, conscious choices about reducing my alcohol intake uh, at times, this seemed like a really good product, and and the sales team really got excited about it. And and then we had a friend mule some back from the states in their suitcase for us, and and brought back you know some of those classic uh, White Claw and and Truly and and these products and uh, I poured it out with our sales rep and she took a sip um, and didn't say anything. Um, little shout out to Ashley, got me very concerned for a second because, you know, as as with the whole brewing industry's moved, you know, I think Garrett Oliver coined the phrase of Instagram culture for beers where we see what other people are doing and try to emulate it because it's awesome before we actually get it and can really figure it out. Um, so when she tried it and didn't say anything, I was just like, oh, if we hype this up into something it's not, like I was expecting her to have a, a reaction of some sort. Um, but then as soon as I tried it, I was like, okay, no, nah, I, I really get this product after the first sip. Um, and from that moment on, we, we really um, committed ourselves to, to getting involved with it, whatever that meant. And it's definitely been a bit of a journey um, and I've heard you guys cover off some of the issues that we faced about getting a product to market like how are we going to produce it uh, what are the implications on flavor of how we produce it um, who are we going to target and you know that that who are we going to target is largely going to define what flavors we try and produce um, and and the branding that we chase as well so there was a lot that went into it for us um, and we definitely make no secret of it either that we we produce this product as an RTD product at the moment. Um, even though we're a even though we're a brewery, um, we produce it like an RTD product. The reason we do that is because, as as you guys have mentioned, there's a lot of uh, problems or well, not problems, but a lot of stuff we've got to figure out with the ATO and about how this product is going to be taxed depending on how you produce it. And we decided that our main KPIs were going to be the, the health conscious elements of this product and also the flavour. I mean, you know, as a, as a craft brewery, we're not about trying to make things as, as cheap as possible. Um, you know, we definitely want to produce products that we can sell. Um, but we set the flavour component as a major KPI, which just meant with the resources we have available, um, to us as a brewery and in Australia at the moment, we we couldn't get that flavour profile right as a fermented product. Because we set those as our, our main KPIs, you know, we wanted to deliver this product. Um, and for anybody who's drunk some out of out of the States, um, they, they present crystal clear. The, the flavor, there is a reason why these products are called hard seltzers. And 
Okay, so seltzer is not a known term in, in Australia very well, but if you think of it as a hard soda water, essentially, there is a real reason why they're called that. While they're very full on flavour, um, they drink so clean and, and easy. And it, until you try it, it, it is a little bit hard to explain, but that's set for ours. Now, we are still investigating and and. At Cheeky Monkey, we put a lot of time into our research and development, uh, especially in the past 12 months. And if we can figure out how to brew this product um, and get it classified as a beer without compromising the, the flavour profile, we'll absolutely look into that. And that, you know, that really gets us excited. Um, but at the moment, we're, we're pretty proud of, of having a product that I think competes with the best products in the world as far as hard seltzers go. Um, so we did launch into market with a, a flavour called just raspberry. It's just a straight raspberry uh, made from natural raspberry flavour. Uh, and then our second product to market uh, was orange and grapefruit, uh, which got our whole brewing team really excited, actually. Um, you know, I, I think there's been a bit of resistance to the hard seltzer trend, especially from, you know, the, the crusted on craft beer fans amongst us. Um, and our brewing team weren't super excited about the first one. But then when we produced the orange and grapefruit, I actually got a call um, from our head brewer who said the aromatics coming off the line were insane. Um, and I, I thought it was really funny in a positive moment when we had our head brewer talking about the aromatics of a hard seltzer. Um, but that, that product really does drink in a really citrus flawed way, which is really cool. Uh, and then our third product, which we're just about to launch, um, we you know, look to the states again about what's working, and, and we've released a, a black cherry flavour. Um, so we're yeah, pretty excited about that one as well. So in terms of the flavourings that you're using, because uh, as Justin identified, health and you know well-being are two of the elements that people are looking for, and and yet you're adding fruits to it. Where are you sourcing those? Uh, syrups and those flavorings and is that something you have in mind when you when you look at things like uh residual sugars and you know the the the, the um calorie load yeah i, I mean it, it's interesting right i tried to go into this with a very open mind about what we might produce and and left tried to leave you know my preconceptions at the door and and we work with a, a commercial manufacturer that produces emulsions and essences and 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 does a lot of work in this space um, and at my first meeting, we, you know, I, I went in and asked for a raspberry um, flavour and, and they gave me, a, you know, a natural raspberry flavour that's made from fruit. It's an emulsion. And they also gave me an artificial one. And, and the artificial one just didn't taste right. Um, so we've gone with this natural raspberry emulsion. It's, a, you know, it's a very concentrated uh, flavour. So the, you know, the residuals on it are really low. And then we use a, a little bit of um, an artificial sweetener in, you know, the tiniest amount just to build out some of that sweetness um, to the product. Um, but if you look at it in terms of, you know, we we understand that the people who are chasing these products are a lot of the time uh, making health-conscious decisions, um, even, even though, you know, we any drinking of alcohol needs to be weighed up, whether you're having a hard seltzer or a beer. Um, but for those looking to cut out some of those sugar and calories, um, you know, there's less less than one gram of sugar in a 375 mil can uh, of one of our products. So, you know, we haven't gone completely sugar free. Um, and, and again, coming back to that, that those main KPIs that we've tried to set of having these the beverages that are lower in calories, lower in sugar that people can make when they're trying to reduce their intake of of uh, sugar and, and calories, but also something that just, like it has to taste good for us. Again, as craft brewery, I don't think there's a lot of people that get into the craft beer industry who, you know, don't have a passion for flavour. Um, so making sure we got a product that tasted good was was really important. And how have they been received by the retail trade, I guess, is the other big question uh, that, that the brewers would be asking. Yeah, look, really well. I mean, we've launched it in a difficult time, obviously. You know, Raspberry came out just as um, as COVID-19 happened. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm pretty proud to say as a business at Cheeky Monkey, you know, we pulled our sales staff off the road immediately, um, which I think was the right decision. 
Um, so it's been a little bit harder to get it to market than normal circumstances would have dictated. And it's it's funny, I, I won't mention the product by name, um, but there's one product that got to market a little bit before us that I don't think has done a good job of representing the flavour of hard seltzer. Um, so one of our biggest barriers to market in a, in a market where we're not able to get the product in front of people on a day-to-day basis, and, and that's starting to change now, obviously, but we would tell people, you know, via EDMs and, and phone calls and, and emails that we have this new product and they'd say, I don't want a hard seltzer. I have X product um, and all of my customers don't want it. And then I have to go, hey, look, this product kind of sucks. Ours is awesome. You really need to try it. Um, so it, it's been a hard road. But with that said, I mean, you know, it's it's on the menu now of you know, some of the best craft beer bars in, in WA, like DTC, um, who, who consistently ranks as one of the best craft beer bars in the country, have it on their menu full time. And so we're really seeing a good pickup from the market. Justin, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest things that we saw, like if you go to the last thing that's really taken over the beer scene and, and Hazy's and Neepers and everything, there was some very poor examples of that in the market during startup. And I believe, I totally agree with Brendan. We did, did a bit of um, research ourselves and uh, in the last couple of weeks and months. And I don't think anyone's really nailed it. And uh, admittedly, I haven't had the great white, obviously, from those guys um, and really keen to. But I, I think there's a big opportunity still there. Everyone's following a trend at the moment without necessarily stepping back and getting their flavour profile correct um, from day one. Um, everyone's just a bit rushed. So I liken it to that hazy craze where you go out there and there's just a, a lot of hazy rubbish out there. Eventually, the haze, the, the craze persisted and the and the flavour got good and balanced and the shelf life got improved and, and now we've got a sustainable new beer style. Um, and so I think we just need some time uh, before everyone rushes into it to, to get it right from the ground up. So just picking up on some of the things that Brendan said, the business case. Um, obviously, there's a marketing case there is consumer demand. From a small brewery's perspective, what sorts of uh, you know business cases there in terms of you know uh, just production times and that sort of thing? At Cheeky Monkey, we've we really benefit from those quick turnaround times in tank, um, and it's also a real diversification of our portfolio. You know, we we target the craft beer market quite heavily, and this is now allowing us to to target a, another demographic without. You know that problem of self-cannibalization of your own products that that some people face. You know when they just want to produce seven different IPAs. Um, so we're really enjoying being able to target new people and new demographics, but also being able to turn it over so quick and not tie up our brew house um, is definitely a bonus as well. There's definitely low tank turnaround time. There's not a lot of capital, and it is a diversification of what you're offering. As as Ruth mentioned earlier, you're jumping at categories you're cannibalizing a bit of the wine guys a bit of the cider guys um, a bit of the spirit guys so you're taking other people's markets that you're not used to and you're opening it to the drinkers i mean we've all been in a in a craft beer bar where you thought we need to have a couple of wines for the people who just have that blanket approach that they don't drink beer it's, it's another offering that you can actually create yourself and and have on the shelf and actually have an improved margin because you're giving those drinkers who don't want beer something that you've actually made yourself and, and got full control over how do they compare to something like cider? Because cider was always one of those products that brewers would have um, for those for the person that didn't want to have a beer. Um, how do they compare in terms of production time and also um, appeal, uh, Brendan? Yeah, the, the production time is definitely quicker um, than, than cider for us. And there's, I think a lot of breweries last year or the year before they start to meld into one a little bit i know a lot of breweries really faced a trouble sourcing fresh apples or, or fresh pressed apple juice or, or whatever they were sourcing and uh there was a time there where we couldn't actually produce any cider just because we didn't have any access so it's nice not to have um that as an issue um there, there definitely is a little bit of a pull from cider i mean we also have a uh uh, alcoholic sugar-free ginger beer in our range which we launched before great white uh, i think the great white products do take away from that a little bit um, but that's because yeah generally if, if you come to our venue for example if 
if you don't drink beer, you tend to gravitate towards the cider and the ginger beer. And, and rather than looking at, at that as a negative, we really view that as a positive as now we're able to offer more to these people and give them more options to really have a, a positive experience in our venue or, or with our brand. Justin, a question from the uh, chat room. Um, Mike at Seventh Day Brewery asks, is anyone using fresh fruit puree and does that make it too hazy or too calorific? Uh, no one actively using a fresh fruit puree to my knowledge at the moment. Um, the, I think, yes, obviously it had introduced quite a fair bit of, um, of colour and body and, and additional calories. Um, but there's a few other things you've got to think of there in terms of residual sugars if you're looking to do it in a, in a post sense. Um, and we can get into that a little bit further when we talk through the, the production steps, I guess. But there's people who are... It depends how you how you're tackling it with malt or pure sugar, but not. I think at the moment the the biggest win there is, is a sort of an extract sort of top note uh, in the flavour because again in the absence of everything else you really don't need a lot uh, of fruit impact there to be perceivable on the palate. And again, picking up on uh, a question I asked earlier, JK nine thousand asks, where is the expected tank turnaround improvement time, ferment time, or conditioning time? On that note, is there a need to filter all products or has anyone had success with fining or simply cold conditioning? So I might throw that to Justin uh, for Bintani's perspective and then uh, go to Brendan for his experience. The tank turnaround question is depending on what uh, method you're taking. Um, if, you, if you are using and approaching it as an RCD beverage, then then the tank time is just mixing in ingredients in a bright beer tank and getting it a bubble and moving on. So really no fermentation. If you're tackling it at a ferment and you are doing your own pure sugar ferment um, and whether or not you're keeping that as an RTD or not, there's the, the gates for ferment could be as wide as, you know, three days to two weeks and that part comes down to nutrition. So if you get the nutritional mineral um, vitamin content right for the yeast, um, it can be all over in three days. Um, I don't think anyone's just simply crash cooling and moving on there. But I'll throw to Ruth because she's um, got a lot more info around that that end of ferment uh, tank time. Yeah, I was just going to add if if um, brewers are looking at doing a a pure sugar or nearly pure sugar ferment, you know we have seen fermentation times really stretch out if the yeast is struggling, if the pH drops too low, um, like Justin said, and and once you then get the right fermentation aid in place, you can go from We've seen three weeks even for quite a low ABV, right down to three days once you've got the right nutrition in there. So it actually can be quite variable. So it's really about understanding the process and the parameters and what the yeast needs. It's also choosing the right yeast on top of that as well, but um, making sure the environment is good for the yeast to be able to be really efficient. Brendan, did you have anything you wanted to add based on your experience? Uh, Yeah, look, I think just... Personal experience, it's something we talk about a lot is is opportunity cost. So by saving that time, by not you know not tying up the brew house, not tying up a fermentation tank, apart from having to mix it, you know, and then and then we're carving it the next day. Um, it doesn't tie up our, our fairly limited tank space, so that presents a, a really great opportunity for us. Um, and I think there's pros and cons uh, to everything, but for us and the way we're doing it at the moment. Um, yeah, that's where we save all of our, our time and, and effort is not having to brew it, not having that fermentation profile. However, you know, I, again, I circle back to if we, if we can do some R&D and, and get a fermented product um, that tastes right, I think we'd definitely sacrifice that quick turnaround for a ferment schedule that we can produce a product that, that can be classified as beer. Uh, another question, this time, uh, now, Charles Oregano, or Oregano, depending on how you uh, <laughs> like to pronounce the condiment, um, is it worth experimenting with a yeast other than EC118 as a means of altering flavour? If so, what other yeasts have any of uh, you heavy hitters dabbled with? Uh, Ruth, as the fermentus um, expert, I might uh, hand that one to you. EC triple one eight. That's a, a champagne style yeast. I understand. Um, we we actually have a specific product that we recommend for neutral alcohol base or hard seltzer base. If you're brewing, especially um, high gravity in particular, um, it's actually a spirit yeast strain that is really um, efficient. It can get up to eighteen percent ABV um, and really high temperatures as well, up to thirty five. 
Celsius, which means you can get a really quick tank turnaround. So actually that would be, you know, a primary product that we would recommend um, for fermenting a base for a hard seltzer. You can, you know, you can choose alternate strains and it does depend a little bit on what your base is. And that's why we encourage a conversation based on exactly what someone wants to do. And of course, we can provide guidance along with Bintani on each specific um, situation. One of the questions that we uh, had had flagged, and uh, again, I'll ask Justin this first and then go to Brendan, is a, a brewery, do they need to get any additional um, equipment in, in order to make them? Once again, a question comes down to which method are you using in those multiple um, attack paths. So if you're purely going to buy ethanol and do a mix, then really, really nothing. As Brendan said, you can punch it in and bubble and mix and carbonate and can. If you are looking to, to run the ferment yourself, um, then the, the really only addition, obviously, we've, all, we've got the right tanks and equipment to get that right. Uh, from an ingredient point of view, there's some holes to fill in on nutrition and buffering, but the, the last one is just filtration, so that the next most common um, action for any of the, um, the breweries doing it through, whether it's there is malt or, or even a pure sugar, is to go through some form of carbon filtration. It's very similar to how most people treat their influent water, um, and that's just to rip out any other odours you get. You can have quite estery uh, ferments. As soon as the nutrition's not right, you'll get a very heavy ester ferment. Um, whiny notes, um, cognitus, uh, all of those kind of things. And once you run down that path, really, that, that detracts from that pure, like, refreshing flavour, and that can contribute to some of those things that Brendan is commenting on, where that, you know, there's some products out there that just don't taste that great. So you want to try and strip as much of that and, and the carbon can also strip a bit of colour out for you as well if you've got a, a really light mold colour. So that's the only real addition and there's ways to get around it without equipment. You can actually pitch loose uh, carbon, so like mix up a slurry of carbon and, and mix it through your tank and then settle it out. Or you can push it through carbon filtration pads similar to influence. Just a quick note, um, I guess if you're really managing the upstream processes really well so managing the ferment well you shouldn't actually end up with too many off notes we have you know been working on these for about six years i think now um starting in the us of course and if you've got the right um fermentation aid and yeast um, you really have a very clean tasting base straight through your typical brewery process really Um, and then often just your plate filtration type system in the brewery a bit of carbon is all you might need Excellent. Actually, and faults was one of the things I was going to uh, talk a little bit about. Brendan, when you guys decided to get into it, was there much trial and error in discovering your process? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there was a fair bit of R&D that went into it. Um, obviously, trying to to brew a product that we could have classified as a beer product by the ATO was probably our biggest barrier in, in getting that right. Um, you know, we'd love to be able to do a, you know, 100% sugar ferment and and punch that out and have it classified as a beer like they can in the States. Um, so, yeah, we, we did fairly, fairly limited trials in terms of brewing that. Um, we concepted a lot out and went through it um, and, and just decided that with our, our budget, um, with you know a timeline of not having a lot of competition in the market yet, and and knowing we can execute most of those KPIs that we set as being key KPIs, um, that producing as an RTD was was the way forward for us to get into the market uh, at an early stage and just make sure it was something that we wanted to do long term before we put you know some serious R and D money behind it. Something that we haven't touched on is production cost in comparison to beer and margin for, for, for the end result. Um, I, I guess excise is going to have an impact on it. But, Brendan, how have you found – how are the, uh, the, the, the inputs compared to the, the, the cost of beer and in terms of the price you're able to charge? How, how does that look? Uh, I, I guess it's, it's not a cheap process because of that excise factor um, and, and what goes into it. Obviously, as as we've said, those production costs are reduced because we're not brewing and, and fermenting it. Um, but the excise and and you know fruits and and ethanol more than make up for that. Um, so I guess in terms of if you took the hard seltzer market at a global level, 
you know, we're definitely positioned more as a, a premium product. Um, and luckily for us, I think our flavour and, and the cleanliness and what we're executing with that allows us to position ourselves in that market. Um, but when you look at the, the commercial realities of the product, uh, I think I don't see a lot of success for smaller craft breweries like us being able to, you know, operate at the current economies of scale to produce this really cheap product um, and have it taxed as an RTD, basically. Yeah, look, there is an opportunity and it comes down to what Brendan was talking about in, in the future to unlock those additional steps to save the money. I think they've taken a good approach with getting the product exactly right. And if they can replicate that using cheaper methods, then it may be worth the investment in time or additional tank space to do the fermentation themselves because there's so many different paths, again, to that end goal. But if you can, if you can run a fermenter at 18% alcohol on a pure sugar ferment in three days, and dilute that down 25 or 75 to get the 4% end product, then, again, that, that's easily going to be worth the, the capital investment of that extra tank to produce your own ethanol in that format. Um, you've then got control over the quality of your own ethanol. Um, you've got control of the timing of the arrival of it. And if you can then switch that and push through using uh, a different taxation method and those doors open, um, then it will unlock a, a different set of cost of goods. But essentially, the cost of goods approach at the moment isn't necessarily any different to, to a tackle with an RCD. It would be nice not to put hops in there, of course. The, uh, <laughs> the bank player would be quite happy not to pay the hop bill. Um, but yeah, the flavours can, can quickly replace that cost. Okay. Um, before we throw it open to questions and even potentially take a few uh, um, phone-in ones, uh, Justin, was there anything else that you wanted to cover off uh, in terms of core topics? Oh, look, the only other side from our point of view was literally just, just breaking down that process pretty quickly, I guess, if anyone's um, keen to understand the, the stages. Um, we'll take the, the sort of flavoured malt beverage approach is probably the best considering um, the taxation ruling in Australia. Um, and, and to touch on that, it still does refer to a product of it's a, it's a, it produces a yeast fermentation of an aqueous extract of predominantly malted or unmalted cereal. So, again, there's so much grain that the, the word predominantly features. So a lot of people are pretty comfortable saying 50% is from those cereal crops and 50% sugar, and that's a pretty safe place to, to be. Um, we all know the big guys, uh, the big commercial breweries can get 30% sugar as it is. So I think that's a reasonably safe um, a level to go at. Beyond that, I think we'd need some pretty open discussion with the ATO. But if you've got a, a fermentation like that, essentially um, run your malt base, run your wort, um, top up with water. And then the real kickers in terms of ingredients and the, and the differential to beer is that yeast nutrition and pH buffering. So the, from, from our point of view, it's entirely the amount of uh, technical um assistance we've been able to give people over the last three months as a lot of people have gone into sugar ferments, uh, not just for Zelta, but for hand sanitizer production as well. So a lot of the distilleries have, have pivoted into that space, both to help their local communities and, and necessity. And it is a really different kettle of fish to people who are used to fermenting uh, malt beverages. So you don't have any of the buffering capabilities. And as soon as that yeast gets running, uh, it can produce uh, it produces its own organic acid, spits them out into the world, and that pH can come plummeting down to below three in 24 hours. So you really need to get the, the buffering capabilities and, and pr provide a substrate that's able to absorb those hydrogen ions and give you a stable pH. Or you need to rely on the fact that you're going to constantly check it every morning and dose with, you know, calcium hydroxide or a carbonate, or sorry, calcium hydroxide or a carbonate to bring that pH balance back up and give something to absorb the hydrogen ions they produce. So look, what fermenters have done in that space, obviously the, the international scene and the need for that sugar ferment is well ahead of where we are in Australia. And it's pretty exciting that they've recently got through some approval of something through Food Standards Australia New Zealand, and they're working towards a solution that'll be available in Australia. So it, it's six years of research has gone into it and without making this a sales point for the solution, a sales pitch for the solution because it's not actually available yet. Um, we do know that as soon as we can get that 
approved for use in beverages in Australia um, that will get that out there and take care of that real troublesome part because that's the that's the part that will take you months and months to get right if you're looking to, to replicate the research and the trial and error and the troubleshooting yourself. Sure. Now, just before we need to let Brendan go uh, to open the phone line up so we can take any questions. Brendan, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, add um, to, to the core topic? No, no. Look, I, I think it's really cool that you guys have done this because I think it is a a, a product category that can really fill an area in Australian um, consumer habits for their drinking choices. So I'm pretty excited about that. And I know Juz didn't want to turn this into a sales pitch, but he sold me on this new product coming in. So I'm greatly looking forward to getting some of that into our brew house and giving it a try. Excellent. Uh, well, Brendan, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, yeah, we all look forward to uh, trying Great White uh, once we get a chance. Awesome. I'll send you guys some. Thanks for having me. <laughs> That'd be great. Thanks for your time. Bye. Okay, we've, we do have a question in the chat room while we wait and see if anyone wants to um, call from Mike at Seventh Day Brewery. And I'm not sure whether Ruth or Justin would be best placed to answer this one. What pH are you looking for in a ferment slash pure sugar ferment? Who wants to take that one? Uh, I could I could take that on uh, based on a lot of the, the work that we've been optimising over the years. Um, if you can manage to control the pH throughout the ferment, and initially making sure you adjust it so to around a level about four is quite good. And then maintaining that throughout the fermentation. So the yeast is not affected at that pH. It can easily handle it. Um, but also down at that level, it, it sort of inhibits the growth of some other potential contaminants as well. But maintaining that pH with a really good um, fermentation aid you know, that contains a good buffering system is really important because as Justin was saying before, you can take one day and you've got a stalled ferment otherwise. So yeah, about four in summary. Excellent. Tim uh, in the chat room, what spirit base are you using to claim uh, zero gluten in an RTD? I guess that would have been uh, best for Brendan, um, who we who we don't have now. Can either of you have an uh, answer about that? I mean, I could say from zero gluten, I know the products in the US are either using a lot of corn dextrose or pure sugar um, for their products, um, for their hard seltzers. So the ones that we're using some malt, if they want to leverage that gluten-free claim, then change to an alternate cereal or just pure sugar. One of the topics we glanced over a little bit there was the, the substrates and the available sort of fermentables. So, I mean, we, we mentioned that people are using malt as a, as a reason to claim that beer line, but there are other options available. Um, rice is quite an acceptable cereal crop. Um, sorghum, tapioca, um, and then you've obviously got corn, uh, dextrose, syrup, and um, corn can be argued to be a cereal crop. So um, you've got a lot of options there, some with gluten, some without, as the available substrate for your, for your main sugar base. So we've got through the question. So, Ruth, was there anything that you wanted to touch on in, in terms of the, the, the central topics? I guess I could just speak to briefly. I mean, we've already talked a bit about it, but the main issues we see with, um, you know, brewers who then go to cementing all sugar or predominantly sugar ferment, you know, sugar washes, lacking nutrients, got no buffering capacity, no flavour, no colour, nothing to hide behind, really. Um, so trying to... In an ideal world, you're wanting to achieve a really neutral, clean flavour. Um, and that's sort of one of the key issues that we see. And the other one is obviously the stuck ferments that we've talked about. Um, and that's why, you know, the, the fermentation aid, we've got a, a very long list of actually ingredients that have been developed over years of research to make sure the yeast has everything it needs and won't, you know, get upset and, and, and create some uh, off notes and high esters, for example, that you don't really want. Yeah, there's definitely a piece around that um, the the faults and perceptible faults. Obviously, we're we're all pretty aware of what can go wrong with beer. Um, sulfur would be a, a one that stands out a lot in in a seltzer, and one that you really need that nutrition level to be to be right. I had a question even earlier for Ruth, and where's the sulfur coming from? Because I know, we know yeast metabolizes it and produce a whole different array of compounds, but it's also actually already got sulfur bound in its own yeast cell wall. Um, so there, there is sulfur present and it can metabolize with the yeast and produce, you only need real base levels of hydrogen sulfide or um, any, any DMS 
I don't think actually you probably can't go down the DMS part, but we, you know you only need base levels of the sulfur to really throw a spanner in that flavour profile. Um, oxidation, for example, would be more forgiving because you you don't have necessarily the same options. But again, you're, you're putting a flavouring component in there on top of the ethanol, and you only need a slight ageing uh, oxidative of that fruit flavour, um, and then that'll be perceived again because there's just nowhere else to hide behind any of the other dominant flavours that we're used to. Ruth, a question from, again, from Mike at Seventh Day Brewery. Uh, what yeast nutrient are you recommending then? Does that depend on the yeast strain? It more depends on what you're doing in the brewery. So what are you fermenting and what kind of gravity and what ABV are you targeting? Um, we've got a couple of key yeast strains we recommend. One in particular is very high performance. We call it the Beast um, and it's really great for pure sugar, and especially if you're really pushing hard for a high efficiency and high ABV up to 18%. Um, and then we've got another, actually, like a champagne cider yeast um, that we'd recommend if you're going a little bit lower and, and maybe have a fair bit of wort in there as well. So it really is a bit of a case-by-case situation. Okay. Now, uh, another team in the chat room uh, so spirit distilled from a cereal not containing gluten such as rice rather than your typical wheat-based spirit. I think that's harking back to one of the earlier questions um, about uh, zero gluten in an RTD. I, I think he means uh, to use... Um, so using a spirit distilled from cereal not containing gluten such as rice, um, I think it was a follow-up question. Yeah, I think I think that goes to the... Well, the way I've interpreted that question is if you want to claim zero gluten and you're, and you're pitching exogenous alcohol, then you need to ensure that that spirit was distilled from a, a non-gluten um, ferment in the first place. So if, if it was a rice uh, ferment or, or the like. But that's, I mean, that's something we don't we don't sell the ethanol. I've never even looked into where to buy it. Um, so, yeah, that would be something you have to ensure. I mean, the gluten food standards claims are, pr- are pretty obvious that it can't you can't just remove the gluten by any means it has to have not been in there by any chance in the first place so i know for us enzymes like clarix um don't enable you to call a beer gluten free because there may still be a, an active protein gluten protein in there I'm, I'm not sure if the distillation process guarantees that a gluten protein hasn't made it up and across the, the column so that'd be something to engage the uh, regular authority regular and for those who are listening without access to the uh, chat room, uh, Ruth also just posted, uh, Mike, we have a fermentation aid for pure sugar or very high sugar ferments that has everything the uh, ferment needs, vitamins, minerals, buffering. So, um, yeah, so if you're listening, uh, you can get in touch with fermenters for that. Um, Bman 21 asks, if you're brewing with 100% dextrose, uh, does that meet the requirements for predominantly grain to be taxed as a beer because it's a corn derivative. Who wants to take, tackle the uh, legal questions? No, nobody wants to answer that question. Even the ATO, um, I've noticed, because I've asked them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, correct. So, it's look, it's, it's a grey area, and until there's a ruling, um, someone might be the first person to go out there and do it, I would recommend you open a dialogue with the Australian Taxation Office and ask them what they think of it because you're, you're right, you can interpret the law that it's a, it's a corn derivative and it came from a cereal crop and I've fermented a product of a cereal crop um, but you could equally argue that that dextrose and it's sugar and by no means is it in the spirit of beer um, and you know there'll be a, a ruling that needs to be made at some point in the future. But to my, the best of my knowledge, it hasn't been made yet. No, it hasn't. And uh, I understand that the ATO has been taking a lot of interest with the growth of the, of the category. Um, so Brews News did post that question to them and we got a statement uh, back saying, it is important that brewers ensure they are taxing their products at the correct rate. These rates can be found on our re- website. And there's a link in the show notes we posted. Um, products described as alcoholic seltzers can fall into different excise categories depending on the ingredients used, method of production, and alcoholic strength of the final product. Where manufacturers want to produce a beverage that is classified to the excise rate for beer, they need to ensure that their product complies with the definition of beer found in the schedule to the excise tariff act. Um, and we'll link to that as well. The ATO also monitors trends in the alcohol industry and advises the Treasury Department where they have may have policy and revenue impacts. And I think that's the key part. They are looking very, very closely 
and looking to see where they may need to look at regulation or laws or get a uh, get a decision. Absolutely, and, and Charles's extra question to that that is just posed then is that there may be a new category for there. There's a movement currently in the US, uh, a petition going around to, to stop seltzers being able to be called beer. Um, there are many other reasons outside of taxation why people will want to associate the seltzer category with beer. One in New Zealand is that that gets them into the supermarkets. So if it's a beer, you're allowed to sell it in a supermarket. So if you can prove that your seltzer is a beer, then that's opened up another whole massive distribution channel to yourself. So there's there's a lot to be determined and uh, commented on um, in the future, Ruth. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, and that's, I guess, the precedent from the USA where um, to be a beer, you used to have a certain amount of cereal grains, um, malted or unmalted cereal grains, and that's been reducing, and now it's down to, you know, sugar is a suitable substitute that can be used, which means you can do a pure sugar ferment and call it a beer. That's changed um, over recent years. So it will be really interesting one to watch. Justin, any, la- any, any last uh, comments from you? Just a quick one, jumping back with to Mike at Seventh Day, there's, um, there is different levels of it all. And the best thing to do is just to give us a call and speak to us. We've been, I've, I've been <laughs> pretty um, consistent with handling these things for a while with the, with the hand sanitizer and obviously a lot of people moving with seltzer. So we need to look at exactly what you're fermenting. Um, you need to understand what your water is coming in. You need to understand uh, the gravity, the temperatures that you're looking at. There's, and there's yeast for different things. If you, if you do have low nitrogen and you're not getting your nitrogen right, you might be better off with a yeast like FD3 that's more forgiving. Um, if you don't have temperature control or you want to you want to get it done quicker and you want to let it up above the 30s, there'll be different yeasts that are suited for different cases. Um, if it's a rice, half rice ferment versus half malt ferment, all of those things play into which nutrients we can recommend to you. So the, the ultimate solution that's coming in the, in the months ahead is really around a pure sugar ferment super high, efficient, um, almost a one-hit solution. Um, but in the meantime, we can work with you and I can, we can bring Ruth into the dialogue and, and solve you know, the case that you're facing at the moment and get the best options for you. Excellent. Uh, anything else to add? Just um, encourage everyone to pick up the phone and, and um, we'll make sure we work with Ventani and help you solve any issues. I'll absolutely make sure that uh, we'll, we'll make a list of probably, Justin, a list of state sales reps so you don't take uh, we've had more than 100 people in the uh, listening so you don't want to take 100 phone calls tomorrow will we uh, list the uh, state-based Bintani reps or do you want to take 100 calls no no we can do that I might be working from home tomorrow if you're still listening Dale um, so I'll, uh, I'll be right I can talk all day no worries. We've just actually just had another email uh, from somebody that would like to reach out to you privately uh, to ask a few questions. So um, uh, we'll absolutely provide a number for, for Justin. So anyone that's listening that wants to follow up and uh, get into Seltzers, uh, you can do that. Um, so thank you, uh, firstly, to Ruth uh, from Fermentus and Justin from Bintani, who can, if you want to get into seltzers they can provide everything that you need including as you can see some outstanding advice um for those that have been uh following haven't seen the discussion in the chat room um we will be posting the show notes the contact numbers and also the full version of this podcast edited down um will be available through the uh, radio brews news podcast channel so you'll be able to listen to it at your leisure and we will be getting a transcript done of it as well so if you wanted to uh have a bit of a look um and 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 read read some of that in a more permanent basis and you don't have to take notes while you listen to the podcast as you jog jog or drive. Um, So that will be available. Thank you to everyone that took the time out this afternoon to join us uh, for this Radio Brews News Brewery Pro podcast uh, and all the very best for those of you who are going to have a crack at seltzers. Thanks very much for having us, Matt. Yeah, it was uh, fantastic. Um, Definitely a lot of interest out there and look forward to... um, tasting some better than the ones we've tasted in our product research to date. So, uh, and Brendan, I'm looking at you. I'm going to get Fabian to buy me a six-pack. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> and uh, Thanks, all. Charles, mate, where will you be able to access this? Um, if you subscribe to the uh, Brews News uh, 
news email that goes out two to three times a week. Um, we'll have the link in there. Otherwise, there will be a, uh, if you go to the Brewery Pro tab on brewsnews.com.au, you'll find the full uh, show notes, contact details, transcript, and a link uh, to, the, to the podcast. So just keep an eye on uh, Australian Brews News, brewsnews.com.au. So thank you all and uh, enjoy your afternoon. Uh...